dagger thrust. He saw the glance, but he gave no sign, for among the things he had learned was discipline. Also, that dagger thrust went to his pride. He cursed himself for having come, and at the same time resolved that, happen what would, having come, he would carry it through. The lines of his face hardened, and into his eyes came a fighting light. He looked about more unconcernedly, sharply observant, every detail of the pretty interior registering itself on his brain. His eyes were wide apart. Nothing in their field of vision escaped. And as they drank in the beauty before them, the fighting light died out, and a warm glow took its place. He was responsive to beauty, and here was cause to respond. An oil painting caught and held him. A heavy surf thundered and burst over an out-jutting rock. Lowering storm clouds covered the sky, and outside the line of surf, a pilot schooner, close-hauled, heeled over till every detail of her deck was visible, was surging along against a stormy sunset sky. There was beauty, and it drew him irresistibly. He forgot his awkward walk, and came closer to the painting. Very close. The beauty faded out of the canvas. His face expressed his bepuzzlement. He stared at what seemed a careless daub of paint, then stepped away. Immediately all the beauty flashed back into the canvas. A trick picture, was what he thought, as he dismissed it. Though, in the midst of the multitudinous impressions he was receiving, he found time to feel a prod of indignation that so much beauty should be sacrificed to make a trick. He didn't know painting. He'd been brought up on chromos and lithographs that were always definite and sharp, near or far. He had seen oil paintings, it was true, in the show windows of shops, but the glass of the windows had prevented his eager eyes from approaching too near. He glanced around at his friend, reading the letter, and saw the books on the table. Into his eyes leaped a wistfulness and a yearning, as promptly as the yearning leaps into the eyes of a starving man at sight of food. An impulsive stride, with one lurch to right and left of the shoulders, brought him to the table, where he began affectionately handling the books. He glanced at the titles and the author's names, read fragments of text, caressing the volumes with his eyes and hands, and, once, recognized a book he had read. For the rest, there were strange books and strange authors. He chanced upon a volume of Swinburne and began reading steadily, forgetful of where he was, his face glowing. Twice he closed the book on his forefinger to look at the name of the author, Swinburne. He would remember that name. That fellow had eyes, and he had certainly seen color and flashing light. But who was Swinburne? Was he dead a hundred years or so, like most of the poets? Or was he alive still, and writing? He turned to the title page. Yes, he'd written other books. Well, 
he would go to the library the first thing in the morning and try to get a hold of some of Swinburne's stuff. He went back to the text and lost himself. He didn't notice that a young woman had entered the room. The first he knew was when he heard Arthur's voice saying, Ruth, this is Mr. Eden. The book was closed on his forefinger, and before he turned he was thrilling to the first new impression, which was not of the girl, but of her brother's words. Under that muscled body of his he was a mass of quivering sensibilities. At the slightest impact of the outside world upon his consciousness, his thoughts, sympathies, and emotions leapt and played like lambent flame. He was extraordinarily receptive and responsive, while his imagination, pitched high, was ever at work establishing relations of likeness and difference. Mr.